0: Um, let's uh, let's turn in our Bibles to our text today. It's Second uh, Kings, chapter eight. 2 Kings, chapter eight. And today I'm going to read just the first six verses of. 2nd Kings chapter 8, but I'll get to that in just a second. Let me pray briefly, say a couple of comments, and then we'll open the text to read it. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day, for these people, for the Trinity Church and for the elders you've placed over them. Father, we thank you for the care that you have exercised through them. We thank you, Lord for the display of godliness that is very clear among them. Lord, bless these people. In the midst of heartache and various distresses that are unique to each family here, we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would bless each one, each family and each individual as they have need. And we all have need. Lord, as we come before you and as we pause on the Lord's Day, a weekly pause, but really a couple hours where we can pause and simply reflect upon you, we pray that you would clear our minds and our hearts. Help us to attentively focus upon you and your word, knowing that worship service, through your appointed means, you work in us, you change us, shape us. So Lord, we pray expectantly that you would do that for us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are times when someone will ask to meet with me. And they'll say to me, Pastor, I I, I need to talk to you because God feels so distant right now. He feels so far away. Now, I've got to confess to you that over the years, my default has, has become, at least in my own thinking, I don't verbalize it. My own thinking is, I wonder if God is far away from you or if you are far away from God. In other words, my default is to ask the question, or at least to begin asking the probing questions, who has drifted in this relationship? Is it God or is it you? And oftentimes, often it's the case we have drifted from God. Often it's the case we feel distant from God because we have moved away. Moved away in our devotions, moved away from the means of grace, moved away from the people of God, moved away from all of those things that would give us a sense of nearness. And so oftentimes spiritual desertion, as the Puritans used to call it, is of our own making, but not always. There are times when our feelings of desertion are not of our own making. There are times when God does pull back. Let me share it with you from Westminster Confession 184. Not the whole thing, but a portion of it. Listen to what he listen to what the divine say. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers ways shaken, diminished and intermitted, as by, now listen to what it says next, and, and I'm going to take, take some things out and just leave in one little sentence, as by God's withdrawing, the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him, to walk in darkness and to have no light. Now, I don't know about you, but that can be a little rattling. To know that God, the God who loves me, withdraws from me the light of his countenance, that I might walk in darkness for a time. And why is that? Well, the confession goes on to say that even that is for my good. Even that is for my own spiritual benefit. The providences of God are always for the good of his people, even if they're inscrutable to me. And indeed, they are inscrutable. Because there are times when God's promises and God's providences are at an impasse, at least in my thinking. And when those two are at odds, the promises and the providences, what do we do? We How do we think? Well, I think that our text helps us with that. And so let me have us turn there. 2 Kings chapter 8. I'm going to read the first six verses. I'm going to return to the Shunammite woman. A great example to us, placed in the text for our good. But I want you to know something, and I can't stress this enough. I say it weekly to my own congregation. This is the infallible, inerrant word of God. We say it's infallible because we, we mean it's true word. And it's a true word because it comes from the God who is true. And we say that it's inerrant because it doesn't wander from that truth. And therefore, this is the safest place to stand. There is no safer place for us to plant our feet. The world may look at us and, and look at us as if we're foolish, stupid, wasting our time, it doesn't matter. This is what our God tells us, and we're here under his means, listening to his word, expecting him to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Let me read God's word to you. Now Elisha had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, Arise, and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman. And here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. I don't know about you, but I, I think that one of the most difficult things about a challenging providence, a hard providence, is the way that our mind works in those moments. There's an unsettledness to it. And you can see it. Sometimes it's in the way a person's eyes move quickly about the room, as if searching for escape. Sometimes it's in just the docility They're immovable. They're staring off into space. They don't know what to do, fearing that if they do anything, it might be wrong. We're not alone. We are not alone as the people of God living in this generation, in this age, in this church. The people of God have felt this sort of thing throughout the ages in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, and in church history in between. And so, for instance, you heard me read the Westminster Confession, chapter 18. But there were Puritans who took up the topic of spiritual desertion and wrote books about it. They wanted to understand what God was doing in in their life to the best that they were able. John Flavel wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence in 1678, it's a fantastic book, one you ought to read. Because it's, it's, a, it's a book by a man who was seeking to understand the hard providences of God. I'm going to refer to that book at different places in my message today. But I want you to hear something that Flavel says. Listen to it, because it's valuable advice. It's counsel that we need. He says this. The written word tells us that the best way to gain inward peace and tranquility of mind under puzzling and disturbing troubles is to commit ourselves and our case to the Lord. And he references Psalm 37, 5 through 7. and Proverbs 16, 3. I want to talk to you about puzzling providences today, and I want to talk to you about how to deal with them. How to understand them. Even how to be shaped by them. So let me give you the outline for the way I'm going to look at the text today. First of all, let's look at some puzzling providences in the text. And after we look at some puzzling providences in the text, we're going to look at the God of providence. We're going to pause and we're going to think about the God who is in control of all things. And for this, we're going to we're going to listen to John Flavel for a little bit. So we're going to look at the puzzling providences in the text, we're going to look at the God of providence, and then we're going to look at how these puzzles are put together, how they're put together. So first of all, let's, let's look at the puzzling providences that are in the text. There are some textual puzzles here, and I want to walk through some of them just to give you a sense of it. Sometimes, like I said yesterday, We can read the text of Scripture, and we can really not take take it in. We read it so fast, the narratives are so brief, that sometimes we read over them without giving a second thought to the circumstances and to the details. For instance, I want you to know that this is in the midst of a famine, or at least a famine that had come to pass, one that God had predicted. Now, famines are uncommon for us, unless you live in California. California then it's like having a famine of electricity. I digress, but anyway. This woman had experienced something that was very common. Very common to people living in the land at the time. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, the story of Acts really is built around some famines. And so famine was a common occurrence. And what's interesting about this particular famine is that the prophet goes to the Shunammite woman and he says to her, sojourn, now listen to this, sojourn wherever you can. Now that's fascinating because I don't know about you, but my mind immediately goes to Ruth. And Ruth was stuck in a famine and her and her husband Elimelech went down, or at least over to Moab, which was a bad thing to do. And in fact, she felt bitterness by it. But here the prophet goes to her and says to her, sojourn wherever you can. Now that allows for her to sojourn outside of the land of Israel, and so she does. She goes to the land of Philistia, the land of the Philistines. She goes outside the promised land, and she does so with permission. Now that's an interesting thing when you think about it. The providence of God is... Perplexing at that point, especially when you think about it in terms of this woman compared to the Ruth story. I want to just pause for a minute and say a word or two that I think might be helpful. When I came down to this camp, Camp Abana, I had no idea where it was situated in the Chesapeake Bay area. I just followed the directions as my phone relayed them to me. And so I ended up here, and then then talking to people, I decided, oh, I, I should probably Google this and figure out where exactly I am, I saw a map. And then last night, I was sitting around, and I was talking about the pilot boats that you see going up and down the bay, and I learned a little more about those. And I learned about how they go up to Baltimore, and drop off merchandise, even cars, and so on. And I started to realize a little bit more, and a little more, and a little more, and And I want you to know something, a person can walk away from a situation or a circumstance like this and feel as if they know quite a bit, when in fact you actually know nothing. I will leave the Chesapeake Bay area and still know nothing, virtually nothing about this area, though I read the board outside and found out how the camp was formed. I know nothing, virtually nothing but we have a tendency to think we know more than we do about life's events and circumstances. We're born interpreters, and so we interpret everything. Or at least we try. But frankly, the fact of the matter is, unless God tells us why, for instance, he did what he did, we have no idea why he did it. I want you to think about, I want you to think about this as we get into these perplexing and puzzling providences. I want you to think about David. And this is in Samuel, I think it's in 2 Samuel 21, there's a famine. Three-year famine. And David gives himself to prayer. Lord, why is this famine here? And do you know what God said to him? God said, this is because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. And you want to say to yourself, What? I thought this was something I did. David is saying, I thought I messed up. I thought the famine was because of me. And in one sense, he wants to dance. Yay, it's not because of me. But the point is, he would have no idea. He would have had no idea why that providence had occurred had God not told him, had God not explained to him. So what could David do in a situation like that? The only thing that any of us can do in a situation like that, and we're living in a situation like that, the only thing that we can do is treat it as an opportunity to be faithful. To be faithful to our God. There's a second perplexing thing about this text. Gehazi? I mean, if we go backward, we... We learned that he had done a bad thing. He went after Nahum. He said, there were seminarians. Can I get some goods? And when he returned to his master, his master said, <laughs> you know, I wonder this. You know, Amos 3.7 says, God does nothing without first revealing it to his prophets. I wonder if, Gehazi thought to himself, I'll take a chance because God didn't reveal what he did to this Unamite woman's child, he prophet. And maybe... I can do that. That's a gamble, And he lost. But here he is. Here he is, leprous Gehazi, standing before the king, and you've got to scratch your head and ask why. And, and commentators do because commentators are wont to do, that sort of thing. And so you read... For instance, one commentator say, well, Gehazi, as a leprous individual, must have been talking to the king as he met outside. Or then there are those that are a little bit more uh, liberal in orientation, and they say something like this, well, probably really wasn't leprosy that he had, even though the scriptures say it was leprosy that he had. It was probably he had, you know, a stab or something like that. Oh, okay. Still others say, well, maybe the chronology is not quite right here, and maybe the, the, maybe the famine is the famine that's mentioned in chapter 4, and so it happens before chapter 5, and so this actually happens before he gets leprosy. Just to ask you a question. Could it be... that Gehazi repented of his sin and the God of all grace forgave him. Could it be that this is a forgiven Gehazi who stands cleansed as he moved forward, of course, to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as he stands now before the king? Could be. The judgments of God are accompanied by the forgiveness of God when there is Repentance. And that's the great biblical hope that we have, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean I, I want you to think about this a second. We, of all people, have hope. And we need to hear that right now. I want to tell you something. What's our hope like? What what kind of hope do we have? Let, let me tell you the kind of hope we have. Let's say, for instance, that my daughter comes to me and says, Dad, I want to I want a bike and it's gonna be a discontinued version, and they only have one left at the store, and my birthday is not until six months away. Can you go get this bike? And so I go get the bike, and I put it away, and she says, Dad, did you get the bike? And I said, yeah, I got the bike. And she said, can I have the bike? I said, no, you have to wait for your birthday. And so every day she says to me, did you really get the bike? And I say to her, what did I say? Yeah, yeah. Do you not believe me? Well, I do believe you, but I don't see it. Well, you don't see it, but who's your dad? Who told you he bought it? You know, that sort of thing, right? But she knows deep down inside that on the basis of what her dad said, even if she can't see it, it's waiting for her in six months. That's the kind of biblical hope we have. God said there's a hope waiting for you in heaven, undefiled. It's a treasure there. And it's eternal life. And you can expect it. It's that's the kind of hope. But I'll tell you the kind of hope that we uh, we don't have. We sometimes, in our worst moments, don't have that kind of hope. I'll tell you the kind of hope we have. But we have the hope, we have the hopes that like the Greeks have. Do you know what I mean? The Greeks had Pandora's box. Do you know what the last... ill? you know the story of Pandora's box? Pandora opens up the box and all the evils of the world come out and spread all over the face of the earth. Do you know what the last evil to come out of Pandora's box was? Hope. Hope is the last evil. And you say, why? Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a 19th century philosopher, really was a pre-Socratic specialist. And this is what he said. He said, Zeus created hope for humanity because... Because as Zeus would play with humanity, he didn't want humanity to throw themselves on a sword or off the bridge or into the sea and and die because then Zeus would have no fun. So he gave them the last evil. He gave them hope to string them along in their despair. Sometimes we as Christians, we might define hope like that. Or at least that's the way we act. And that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not just moving from one day to the next in despair. That's not a biblical hope. There are other puzzles. Where's the Shunammite's husband? (coughs) He was old. We were told that in the last story. He was an old man. He is likely dead. But there's a Another perplexing thing here. The prophet of God told her that she could go outside of the promised land and sojourn in this time of famine. She does that, and when she comes home, it's not just her farmland that has been taken, but it's her house. She's homeless. She doesn't have a place to live, and she doesn't have a field to work to generate an income. Why in the world do we find these perplexing providences compounded by a sovereign God who could have made all of them go away in the twinkling of an eye? Why is it that this woman has to experience these things? These are loose ends. And I want you to know something. The author does not feel compelled at all to tie up the loose ends for us. And that's really where we live, isn't it? We live in a day <coughs> and an age when... God doesn't feel compelled to tie up the loose ends of our particular providences. He expects us to live faithfully in the midst of them. I want you to know something. We have a tendency to want to read the signs. We have a tendency to want to dig deep into the inscrutable ways of God. (coughs) We want to read the signs and, and act as if we know what God is doing. I'll tell you, I'll never forget I was... I was driving across the state of Pennsylvania to go to school weekly for my Ph.D., and and I ran into a snowstorm, and the next Sunday I had a woman come up to me, and she said to me, God has given me a message for you. Now, I know that might be striking to you to hear in a Reformed congregation, but it was said to me. I have a message from God for you. And I said, what is it? Tell me what it is. And she said, God wants you to stop going to seminary. And I said to her, I said, now, can you help me why? And she said, because it took you 12 hours to get home instead of six. That was a terrible snowstorm. God's telling you something. I said, well, when I put that snowstorm in the scale with the other five days of sunshine that I've had driving out on those other weeks, I'm really not sure how to weigh that off with one another, right? We think that we can read and discern and know, and we really can't. The wise are an opportunity to live faithfully. But for that to happen, we need to know the God of providence. We need to know the God of providence. Flavel, at this point, gives us some counsel, and it all orients us to God. I want to read some quotes to you, and I I want to just say a couple of things along the way. I want you to hear these things, because they're good for us. He says this. He says, Set the grace and goodness of God before you in all afflictive providences. In other words... Give your panicked eyes something to look at. And so set the grace and the goodness of God before your eyes. Give yourself something to look at in your affliction. And then he says this. He says, I, the wisdom of God in all your afflictions. I, the wisdom of God in all your afflictions. In other words, tell yourself that there's somebody wiser than you. Because I want you to know something. We think we are wiser than God. And that's the way it is in, in difficult moments. That's always the way it is. I mean, we get, we get into a difficult situation and we think that we are our best counselor when in fact we're not. We get in a difficult providence and we think we're our best counselor with God. We say, God, do you want to tell me about this? You want to tell me why you're doing this to me? Because let me tell you what I think would be better. And we do that in so many words. We need to remind ourselves that God is all wise. Or how about this one? Set the faithfulness of the Lord before you under the saddest providences. The faithfulness of God before you under the sadness of promises. I want, providences. I want you to know something. I think the biggest thing is we feel alone. I am so thankful for, for how I've watched this church mourn, even while you're away from those who are in your family. I'm so thrilled with how I've watched people mourn with Stephen and your Honor. I'm delighted with how your elders, all of them, went. It's what we have to do is we have to remember that we are not alone and it's the fellowship of God's people that reminds us of that. Fellowship we often think about as fire hall fellowship but koinonia is not that. Koinonia is when you have an investment with someone. You partner with someone. For instance, the Philippians partnered with Paul in the gospel. That means you've got sweat equity in it. It costs you something just as much as it costs the other. Or how about this one? I, the sufficiency of God in the day of affliction, know your resources. I want us to go to 1 Peter again. Go to 1 Peter. Take a look at chapter 5. I said to you that I was going to take you back in that direction. I want you to go there now. 1 Peter chapter 5. And you notice that he talks to us about humility, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. But then he says this, it's in verses 6 and 7, I want, I want you to just hear 6 and 7 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, the pro- at, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you read 6 and 7, there, there's not a clear connection as to how 6 and 7 relate to one another. But I want you to know that word casting is what we call an aorist participle. And in the Greek language, there are key words, helping words, that basic grammars use to give us a sense of how to understand certain words in certain sentences. And an an aorist participle takes the helping word after. Now listen to how this verse reads when I insert the helping word. It goes like this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you after casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I want you to know something. You cannot hold on to your anxieties and be humble. When you hold on to your anxieties, you are proud. Because what you are saying is, I can handle these things. But when you cast your anxieties on God, what you are saying is, I can't handle them. You can. And in that, you're humbling yourself before the living God. You know, it's interesting. He goes on to say, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. He reminds us of Adam in the garden, doesn't he? The proud one who was devoured by the lion, Satan. He says, don't don't follow the first Adam. Follow the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. That's the idea. And then this. How do we do that? We pray. We pray. That's how we cast our anxieties upon him. That's how we cast the things that are troubling to us. And at this point, some of you, I, I, I dare to say, some of you will say to me in your own head, privately, I've done that and it doesn't work. I've been there, I've done that, and prayer just doesn't work. And I want to say to you, in all honesty and as gracious as I possibly can be, you may say that your prayers are ill-effective, but you may not say that prayer is ineffective. And what I mean by that is this: if you look at your, if you examine your life, if you find your prayer life to be very cool and ineffective and so fruitless that you can cast it off from one morning to the next, you've probably put yourself in that situation by casting your prayer life off from one morning to the next. If you if you want to know that God cares for you, then you need to begin to pray regularly, faithfully. Seek out out the Father through the Son by the power and might of the Spirit. And you will know what His comfort is. And I say that because that's what He says to us. "Then, Then this, I, the immutability of God, God does not change. He is faithful from one moment to the next. This is our God. B.B. Warfield once said this. He said, "A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. I would adjust that a little bit and say, a firm faith in the God of providence is the solution of all earthly troubles. So let's return to the text thinking about God from that perspective. Let's think about how these puzzles are put together. I want you to think about the Shunammite book. She's been gone for seven years, her husband is gone, the land is gone. Her life appears very out of control. And when she walks into the throne room, she is facing all of the anxieties of life seemingly alone. But she's not alone. She's not alone because God is with her. And on this day, God is bringing all the threads of her life together. On that day, Gehazi was with the king, remarkably. And the king was saying, Gehazi, now tell me about some of the great things that Elisha the prophet has done. Tell me some stories. And so Gehazi starts telling him some stories. And one of the stories he begins to tell him is the story of the Shunammite woman. He says, I've got one for you. There was this woman who used to feed us. And one day she said, I'm going to build a room for the prophet. You know, I had to sleep out with the donkey, but he got the room anyway. I digress, right? You know, that sort of thing. And he says, one day the prophet said to me, what should we do for this woman? And, you know, he had, you know, he was professor, you know, he had no common sense about him at all. You know, he forgot, he forgot he ate lunch right after he ate it. So he said to me, what do we do with her? And he said, should I speak to the king? Should I, should I speak to the commander of the army? for her? No, 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 she didn't want those things. He said to me, what should we do? And I said to him, she doesn't have any children. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And he summoned the woman and he said to her, you're going to have a child. And the woman said to him, don't say that if it's not true. And she had a child. And the, and the lad grew. And then the lad went to the field to work one day. And something happened to him. I don't know. His father sent him to his mother. He spent the, the morning with his mother. And, and then he died. And that woman came to us at Mount Carmel. God had kept it from the prophet. He didn't know So he sent me to inquire. The woman pushed right past me. Said, all is at peace. When she got to the prophet, she got a little too close. I tried to get her away. The prophet said, let her come. And all she had to do was say a couple of things. And the prophet, who had seemingly no common sense, knew exactly what she was saying, gave me a staff and told me to run and lay that staff on the boy. And I did. King, I did. I ran. I ran more that day than I've ever run. It was like running a super marathon. I ran to the boy, and I ran back, and I went again. You know, that sort of thing. And nothing. I really did expect when I laid that staff on that boy, I expected to see a resurrection. I did. But that boy was dead. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Gehazi having to go back and meet the prophet and the woman? midway and say the boy didn't come back to life we got there and the prophet paced and he prayed he stretched himself out on the boy and he got up and he paced and he prayed some more and he he got himself on the boy again and I didn't see it but I heard the boy sneeze. Seven times I heard him sneeze. And Gehazi, as he's telling this story, (laughs) can you imagine that? He looks, and he says, King, there's the woman. And there's her son. And you know, the king who's just heard the story does what any man would do. He says, tell me the story. He gets her up to the front of the line and he says, tell me. Tell me the story about her son. And she does. And you know, while she's telling that story, you have to, I mean, this is a believing woman. You have to imagine this woman is singing praise to God. She's saying, she's saying, the Lord is tying up all the threads. God is active. You know, I... Why don't don't we believe like that? Why don't we believe that God ties up all the threads? Not the way that we think he ought to tie up all the threads. But why don't we believe that God ties up the threads and we live in that kind of joy and expectation? You know, I want you to know something. I want you to know that God always answers prayer. If God does not spare a life, if God does not spare a life, it does not mean that he did not answer that prayer. It may, for instance, mean that he strengthened those about that person who was lost to withstand the loss. But God is always on the move. God is always active. We need to live in that sort of expectation that God can restore life, that God can make well, that he can remove something from the body that's there. He can do all things. And we need to live in that expectation. Why not live there? Who wants to live in darkness where there is no light? Why not live in the light of God's countenance, even if we feel as we're walking through the veil of the shadow of death? (coughs) because surely God is there. And here he is. He's restoring this woman's land. Not just her land, but all the produce that left with her. And there are several things I want you to learn. Let me give them to you briefly. First, we must not be afraid. Even if the future looks dark, we must not be afraid. I want you to know something. This Shunammite woman went to the king knowing full well what happened to Naboth. Naboth's Vineyard was seized by the king, and he was put to death. So those kinds of those kind of political antics happen, and yet she goes to the king and she seeks her property. She did not fear. She wasn't paralyzed. She wasn't like Peter, who looked at the waves and started to sing. She was like the three friends. She was like the three friends. You know, I want to tell you something. When we broke the news to my congregation about my wife, I started by talking to them about Daniel 3. And I told them, I just reminded them of the story. Remember what they said to Nebuchadnezzar. They said, Nebuchadnezzar, you can throw us into that furnace. And we may live, or we may die. But it doesn't matter if we live or die, God is still God, and we want you to know that before you throw us into the furnace. That's the kind of hope that we live in. Second, we ought to expect God to act. We often function as practical deists. And if you want to know what I mean, ask yourself how your prayer life has been. And if your prayer life has not been vital, if it's not been good, if it's been non-existent, you're living like a practical atheist, and you should be rebuked, and you should return to a faithful prayer life. I can't stress that enough. If you want to know the closeness, the nearness of God, the comfort of God in a difficult, hard providence, then you better be praying. You know, we're reformed people, so we read. Right? You know how that is. I had time for my reading, but not for prayer. Do that tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes. And if that's you, then you need to put prayer first, and you read tomorrow. Third, God does the unexpected. I want you to think about this. Gehazi and the king had good reason to hate Elisha. And here they are, here they are fondly talking about him. And this woman, who is Elisha's friend, is now welcomed. And, uh, and what, what happened to you? Oh, you had to leave. Restore her land, her house, and all the produce that the land produced in the last seven years. God does unexpected things. We ought to expect God to do the unexpected. We ought to expect that God orchestrates and governs all things. I want you to know, when you're in doubt about that, when you're in doubt as to whether or not God orchestrates all things for our good, I want you to jot this text down and read it. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and following. Listen to it. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. If God orchestrated the death of his own son for our redemption, then we should not fail to think that every event of life is orchestrated for the good of his people. Because indeed it is. And indeed that's how much he cares for us. Gracious God, thank you for this day and for the time you've given to us here at Wabana. We praise you for all of it. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day. For the way in which your spirit ministers to us. And that through the word that you have spoken and inscripturated. Lord, bless Oliver and his family. We pray again that you would do the unexpected, that you would defy the results of the MRI yesterday, that you would cause this little one to be healed as you knit him together in his mother's womb, says Psalm 139, and we believe it. We pray that you would knit him back together Lord, we believe, and we ask, and we have hope. And so we pray that you would intervene. Lord, bless us together. Give us safety in our travel home. Give us the rest of the Lord's day, Lord, as a blessing. And strengthen us in it, for we ask it in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our only Savior. Amen.